Hello, I'm Matt Chorley and this is Politics Without the Boring Bits. And with so much going on in the world, which is frankly a bit gloomy, today we are looking at reasons to be cheerful. The Danish author and political scientist Bjorn Lomberg on why things aren't as bad as we think they are and why the future isn't quite as bleak as sometimes. Well, basically the news tells us a really fascinating interview coming up with him. We'll also bring you a sneak peek of this week's How to Win an Election with Peter Manson, Polly McKenzie and Daniel Finkstein. Today, taking a look at how to split the vote or where the Tory vote is going and how they might get it back. So you can get a little taste of that on Politics at the Boring Bits. But if you want to listen to the full thing, head on over to How to Win an Election. If you like what you hear on the podcast, don't forget you can join me live for Politics Without the Boring Bits on Times Radio, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. That's Politics Without the Boring Bits, weekdays from 10. It's very quiet, news-wise. Very quiet. Too quiet. In fact, the big this is the big news from Downing Street. We have an announcement. I mean, it, it went on. It went on. They got a town crier to announce that the UK government is now on WhatsApp. You can, you can get messages. I mean, it's bold. I'll give them that. It's bold for this government of all governments to boast about its new enthusiasm for WhatsApp messages. You don't now have access to any of the WhatsApps that you did send during the time of the crisis, do you? No, I don't. I've changed my phone multiple times over the past few years. Why did you turn on the disappearing message function around the time that the Prime Minister announced a public inquiry into the Covid pandemic? I cannot, I mean, I can can guess or I can speculate, but I I cannot uh, recall exactly why I did so. A factory reset that was done, was it you that tried to reset the phone or not? Factory reset. There was a there is a device or a capability on the phone which allows its contents to be entirely reset. I, that was I, I don't remember The things that Mr. Cummings, having seen those messages, it was you know it's not it's horrible to read, but it is both surprising and not surprising to me. You call ministers useless f- pigs, morons. in emails and WhatsApps to your professional colleagues. And now, as we always do on a Tuesday, here's a little sneak peek of this week's edition of How to Win an Election. We're going to talk about how to split the vote in a minute and where the Tory vote's going, where the Labour vote might go. And we've got some polling to show how people would vote if the Tories and the Labour Party didn't exist. But first, it's 100 days until the local elections on May the 2nd. Local elections are councillors and mayors in England, London mayor, police and crime commissioners. Um, 
do they matter? I mean, they obviously matter locally as to who's running your town hall. Danny, as part of your ongoing campaign to say that nothing makes any difference to the elections, um, <laughs> do the local elections well, make any difference? Look, I think, I think you know, um, being being a Bayesian, uh, new pieces of information move my view. So the discussion we had last week, I think... But both Polly and Peter what's a, what's a were. What's a Bayesian? We all are to be confused. <laughs> it's about probability theory and oh, okay. where you start. Oh, so yes, so taking into account new pieces of information. So Polly and Peter made the correct point that actually these um, these events, big political events, let's take, for example, the Eastbourne by-election in Mark Thatcher's premiership. That was a contributory factor to her defeat and naturally her being her internal defeat and her being removed as prime minister then made a difference to the next general election this episode of politics without the boring bits is sponsored by bt because bt means business bt knows that businesses come in many shapes sizes and guises from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer which is why no matter what line of work you're in they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best no doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. So there, As so, was Midstaffs and Vale of Glamorgan. So I, I don't believe they influence the top line. In other words, I don't think that voters are paying attention or, or, or their, their votes shifted by the event, but they do shift events in politics. So I think I would adjust... You know my sort of general view that the that 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 lots of these things are noise rather than signal. They do have um, an, an effect. So. And there's also just a, a practical point, isn't it, Polly? That if the Tories lose lots of councillors, they're less likely to be enthusiastically going out and knocking on doors and leafleting come the general election. There's a sort of foot soldiers problem. A massive foot soldiers problem. And most councillors, uh, except for parish councillors, get paid, and and so they may actually be short of an income. I mean, lots of them are retired, but nevertheless, they might actively have to be working somewhere else, as well as the lack of morale and enthusiasm that they might experience for having uh, you know lost lost a position uh, potentially they might have to be you know renegotiating the leadership of the council so so both morale and practical you know i guess doorstep hours are going to be really reduced by a, a big reduction in the number of councillors third factor in addition to morale and momentum is the authority of the prime minister you know if they feel he's not a winner uh, then, you know, his authority further subsides and everything is made much more difficult. People are much more prepared to sort of speak up against him, create waves, create problems, not fall into line. And I think that will be the story of the rest of the year if uh, Sunak, as he has indicated, he might go for an autumn election. I mean, the, the, I suppose the, the counter-argument is Tony Blair used to lose thousands of councillors, uh, dozens of councils in between general elections... And then would cut would come back and win 
general elections. So, so they're not a, a direct... You, it yeah, seems even to, William Hague used to make big games. It just seems to me a bit surprising that people wait for local election results or by-election results to tell them distorted... Um, to give them distorted information about what the opinion polls are already telling them. <laughs> I, I just that, I, I understand that it does happen. I can see it with my own eyes. It does happen. Uh, these things have an impact. They have an impact on morale. And obviously, if you lose a lot of councillors, a lot of people in the party, for example, have lost their seats and they've got to blame it on someone else. So they blame it on the national party and the local MPs get spooked. But it seems, you know, if, if the Tory party learnt from the local elections that it wasn't doing very well, why on earth would it wait until I can tell them that now? Um, and and um, it's obvious from these huge polls, um, and we know it also from just talking to anyone in the street. So uh, it's just surprising to me that these effects, these have these effects, but they, they clearly do. And if you want to hear the full episode, just search How to Win an Election wherever you're listening to this. Subscribe. Tell your friends. Up next, with so much gloomy news around, we thought we'd try to be a bit positive and bring you some reasons to be cheerful. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. The Big Thing. Oh, it's gloomy, isn't it? All the news is gloomy. It's all doom and gloom. Are there any reasons to be positive about what's going on in the world right now? If you watch or listen to the news, it's easy to believe everything's just falling apart. You've got the cost of living crisis, public services in crisis, strikes you've got abroad, you've got the war in Ukraine, the war in the Middle East, climate crisis... We're always talking about what's going wrong in the world and why things are really bad. So today, we thought we'd try and focus on some reasons to be slightly more cheerful. Now, someone who thinks that things are not all bad is the Danish political scientist, author and climate contrarian Bjorn Lomberg. He argues in particular that global warming is not as bad as it's made out to be, and if we panic, we might actually make things worse. So I asked him if we are right to see a catastrophe in everything. It's important to say when you listen to the news, we talk about problems. Now, that's fine because those are the ones we want to fix. But it's not a good way to get informed about how the world is overall doing. You guys, news is a very curated sample of all the things that have gone wrong in the last 24 hours. It's not surprising that you get a very wrong sense of how the world is doing. Just to give you one example, 
for the last 25 years, every day, not just every second day, but every day, each of the newspapers around the world could have had as a cover story, 138,000 people have been lifted out of poverty in the last 24 hours, for the last 25 years. Now, if you ask most people, they actually think that more people live in poverty now than they used to. Of course, that's nowhere true. We've seen a dramatic decline. And this is one of the reasons why you don't get a good sense of proportion. And so I'm just going to give you a, you know, sort of the very brief primer of why things are overall much, much better. Look. It's what we're here for. It's what we're here for. Yes. We, we live much longer. In 1900, the average life expectancy for a person on the planet Earth was 32 years of age. Last year, it was 73. We've more than doubled our lifetime. You and I and everybody else now lives more than two lifetimes on this planet. That's, that's fantastic news. Uh, we, we have much less poverty, as we just talked about. We're much better educated. We have much more food. We have actually, in very many ways, dealt with a lot of the environmental problems that we thought we had. You know, indoor air pollution dramatically reduced. Uh, and, and that is incredibly important because that has been the vast majority of pollution cases, which is the vast majority of environmental problems, because we've lifted people out of poverty. And of course, you know, just incomes have risen more than 10 times. So we are much better off. Now, there are lots of problems. Absolutely, the world could be much better than what it is today. But we're on a trajectory that is going to leave us by the end of the century much, much better off on most things. Now, there are some things that we should be concerned about, you know, like, for instance, nuclear war. If if we don't contain that, that could dramatically yeah. change the picture. Uh, there are some people who would argue AI could potentially do that. This is not my, my field of specialty. But if you look at what the UN is actually predicting for 2100, we're going to live longer. We're going to have higher incomes. We're going to be better educated. We'll have virtually nobody in hunger. We'll have virtually nobody in extreme poverty, $1 a day kind of thing. Mostly, this will be a much better world, but still with challenges. And that's the ones that we need the daily news to tell us, what should we do about? Is part of the problem that we've been, you know, again, this is broad brush, but we've been on a sort of apparently unstoppable conveyor belt of things getting better, um, whether that is life expectancy or incomes or, or whatever it might be. And actually, there's this sort of slight feeling that, you know, in some countries in the UK, life expectancy is is either halting or going backwards. So there are, you know, some groups, and depending on how you measure it, you know, people going into poverty who hadn't been before. The cost of living crisis, real wages haven't grown in the last decade or so because of, you know, the financial crash and COVID and all of that. And so there's just this feeling that what used to be a sort of reasonably smooth path to progress is like, well, we're going, you know, it's one, two steps forwards, one step back. And it, it's unsettling. And there's this sense of, maybe even unfairness that the people enjoyed all the booming, the good times. I think there's two relevant comments to that. One is, if you go back in time, we had just the same sorts of complaints. So it's not like this is new. If you go back 50 or 100 years, people were also like, oh my God, the world is coming to an end. And it did, right? Uh, so it's important to sort of keep that in focus. But I think something else is, is also happening, that our expectations of how much better things are going to be are running ahead of what they're actually doing. And so people are sort of, I thought I was going to be much richer, but I'm only a little richer. I thought I was going to be much better off, and I'm only a little better off. You know, this sort of thing. If you, if you look at the science fiction episodes in the 1950s, you know, you saw sort of flying cars, and you had these little things that you, gizmos that you could communicate with people on. 
we only got one of those two. <laughs> and it feels like we should have had both, right? And I get that sort of disappointment, but you also need to sometimes step back and say, yes, but things are actually dramatically better. To what extent is there also a bit of our hyper-connectivity now means that, you know, in the, quote, good old days, when your only connection with what was going on beyond your street or your town was you might read a paper in the morning and you might watch the TV news at tea time. Whereas now you can you can spend all you know whether you call it doom scrolling or whatever you call it, but you can spend all day finding things to be very concerned about. You know, normal citizens who didn't actually spend much time thinking about politics definitely weren't you know getting live pictures around the clock of that humanitarian catastrophe there or or that climate warning there. Did we live in a state of blissful ignorance before? Possibly, it's hard. These are, these are very very hard questions to to answer, and and honestly, I'm old enough to pretty much remember what that was like, uh, and and I think I was still very worried. I you know I used to be a member of Greenpeace and be very worried about a lot of things. I do think though that it's important to say while you can see a lot of doom scrolling on on Twitter or wherever you do this, it is much more the official ways that we're packaging things. Uh, so you mentioned climate change before. Climate change has been weaponized into this end of world kind of argument. And the media loves it for obvious reasons because, you know, it sells, uh, gets you more clicks, that kind of thing. Uh, but also most politicians love it because they get to say the world is ending, but vote for me and I'll make sure it goes away. And of course, a lot of NGOs do this. So I, I think this is also useful ways of manipulating people by simply scaring the socks off them. And, and, and we're doing that very, very well, for instance, with climate. Now, again, climate is a real problem. But, you know, we, we need to get a sense of proportion and we often don't have that. If you, if you look, for instance, what do we expect is going to happen with our food supply? Well, if you look at the best estimates, and there are lots of these, I'm just going to give you one of them, but, you know, one shows if there was a lot of climate action, we would see by 2050 an increase in agricultural production totally for the world of 54%. But if we don't manage to do this and we sort of, don't do very much about climate, it will be 53%. Now, most newspapers will tell you there will be less food in 2050 because of climate change, which is technically true, but it's also dramatically misleading that the main point, of course, is that we will be much better fed in 2050. But because of climate change, it may take another nine months. You know, so instead of in January uh, 2050, we'll have uh, 54%. It'll take to September uh, 2050, which is a problem, but it's not the end of the world. Is there a bit of, though, that that's like a global picture, that yep. overall, you yes. know, that is, you know, 54% for the entire globe. But in reality, what that means is there'll be parts of Africa where you can't grow anything anymore, but Cornwall is going to have a really good wine harvest. So, so the experience of individuals could be very negative, even if globally the sort of the, the line on the chart is improving. There's a little bit of that, but there, there's a lot of news person than you who also would like the, you know, the. It's not that Africans are going to be totally unable to uh, to produce their food, but they will clearly have more problems. One of the ways, of course, to make sure that they have fewer problems is by making sure that most people don't work in agriculture, but they actually work in cities, just like everywhere else, and that you produce food where it's most economical and where, where, where it grows uh, the best. But again, we need to remember the size of this problem. We're talking about 
at slightly higher challenge, but not that you won't be able to produce any food. Uh, I, I, I don't know about you, but I've, I've never really produced any food in my life. And I, that, that's certainly true for most people, you know, except for that you plucked a few apples or something. Yeah, put some carrots in the garter, but it's not, it's, it's got a small proportion of my eating. And it's certainly not something that's going to keep you alive, right? The, the point is, that we have a system that works incredibly well. And yes, there will be changes to that system because of global warming. And there will be some places where you'll be able to grow better. The fundamental point is, this is not going to be the end of the world. Just like most other things that we're talking about is not going to be the end of the world. We'll actually be better off. But for some of these problems, slightly less better off. I suppose the, the all this does depend, like you said, on some action being taken. And then there's then a question of whether or not that action is being taken fast enough by the right people you know people always make this point what's the point of you know me recycling my milk bottles if in the time it's taken for it to be recycled china's built four power stations wherever it might be um and so as a result you get the bodies who are concerned about this Hmm. ramping up their rhetoric to try and get action so you get the world health organization saying they say climate change presents a fundamental threat to human health it affects the physical environment as well as all aspects of natural and human systems. It goes on to say it is therefore a threat multiplier, undermining and potentially reversing decades of health progress. I suppose the question is, is you're saying that we do need to adapt and, and we do need to make changes. Do you think that we are making the changes we need to make so that we don't have the catastrophe that you don't think we're heading for? So we're, we're certainly not investing in, enough, for instance, in research and development into yield enhancement. Uh, so this used to be a big thing that you would invest a lot in making sure that food and vegetables were grown better with high yielding varieties so that fewer people could get more food out of the same amount of, of, of land. And this is especially true in the poor part of the world. This is one of the places where we should be spending uh, more of our development aid. And we're not. So there are definitely places we should do this. One of the things we should also be careful about is not to do too much. You know, if you look at sort of the argument, a lot of people saying we should go to two degrees centigrade. That's an upper limit of how much we want to do. If you actually run the models, what these models show is if you actually try to reach two degree target, you need to tax a lot of uh, fossil fuel emitting uh, substances. One of those things is going to be fertilizer because people, this is mostly made with uh, natural gas around the world, and we're hugely dependent on this. What that would mean is if you get the taxes right, people will use less fertilizer. That's nice because it emits less CO2, but it's unnice because it actually produces less food. What they end up showing you is that then the world will end up producing 48% more food by 2050. And, and And the point here is, all of these numbers are great. We're going to be have much, much more food, but we'll actually be slightly worse off even if we try to solve the problem by just trying to solve it with sort of regular climate policies. Now, this doesn't mean we shouldn't do anything about climate, but it means we need to be very careful that we don't apply such strong measures that we end up making most people worse off. But isn't actually is the alternative view that actually we just need to be honest that given that what, it, what the humans are doing to the planet, uh, in order to make sure we don't destroy the planet we are going to have to accept trade-offs and downsides and having 48 percent more food rather than 54 percent more food i mean that's that's a sort of in a parallel universe which doesn't exist anyway and it's very hard for people to quantify that that there are there are downsides and actually politicians and other you know climate campaigners whatever aren't being honest they don't say 
we do need to do this because we need to address the, the climate challenge, yep. but there will be downsides to that. And actually pretending that you can have it, have everything as part of the problem. I, I think you're definitely right that we should be more honest about it. But I would actually argue we are trying way too hard. We're actually trying to do something that ends up doing less good than what we want to do. And, and so we also got to be honest that sometimes you can do too much. Uh, and, and one of the things that will happen is that in your very well-meaning attempt to try to make more food for people, you actually ended up making less food because you made fertilizer too expensive. That shows you, and I think we see this in a lot of different circumstances, that because people are so concerned about this one thing, namely that we're going to destroy the planet with climate change, and that's not really what's in the card, we're going to make the world slightly less, much better off with climate change. What we need to get is how do we fix this in a way that doesn't cost more than the problem that we're trying to solve. And that is make green energy so cheap that everyone will want to buy it. The point here is we are making this conversation in a very small fraction of the population. So, you know, like 16% of all the rich countries that are trying to be virtuous, but actually, you know, we're, we're still about 80% fossil fuel, uh, even in the rich world. Uh, but we're trying and we're doing something, but we're doing things that are just not replicable in Africa. You know, you, it's not like Africans look at uh, Germany and look at their uh, their energy policies and say, yes, we want that. Deindustrialization and incredibly high energy prices. That is something you can possibly do if you're very rich. But even there, they're struggling, right? But you're certainly never going to do this for, for poor populations that mostly just want to lift their people out of poverty. And actually, on that subject, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, says in vulnerable regions, the death rate from extreme weather events in the last decade was 15 times higher than in less vulnerable ones. But then I noticed you post on Twitter saying, despite the climate narrative, almost everywhere cold is much more deadly than heat. Are you suggesting that actually the gain from the planet warming up means that overall, the gains from fewer people dying from cold will be outweighed by the people who might die from the heat? So there, there's a couple of things we need to uh, pull out of there. The IPC, the UN Climate Panel, is absolutely right that poor countries are more vulnerable. They suffer a lot more of this. If you actually look at the statistics, both rich and poor countries have seen dramatic declines in the vulnerability to extreme weather. This has nothing to do with climate, but everything to do with the fact that when you get people out of poverty, when you don't live under corrugated roof, you're much more likely to survive a hurricane. So this is basically about if you want to help people not die in extreme weather, it's mostly about getting them out of poverty. It's not about you know tackling climate change, because even if what we do dramatically will only have a tiny impact in 50 or 100 years. So that's one part of it. On the cold and heat, it's important to recognize that right now we actually know that there is a trade-off. So as temperatures rise, you're going to see more heat deaths. You're going to see fewer cold deaths because there are many, many more cold deaths and heat deaths on the planet. We're actually seeing a net positive. But in some sense, this is not what's relevant because these are, uh, if you will, these are already baked into the whole conversation. So it's yes, it is important to recognize that overall we're actually seeing fewer people die from heat and cold. But that's more sort of a rhetorical point than anything that will guide our politics. Um, there's obviously a bit, I don't know if you're aware, there's a big debate going on in the UK right now about Labour have got a £28 billion green plan 
which started off at 28 and then it's sort of been whittled down and some of it actually might be already baked in and is it 20 and the Conservatives seem to think that this is a real stick to beat them with they want to do something to deal with climate change I mean they Labour say well actually it's more of an economic thing because if we can green the economy that's good for the economy we're less reliant on imported energy and that sort of thing. I mean are you aware of it are we wasting our time even having that argument what we have to recognize is climate is going to be a problem but our climate policies could very easily end up being so costly that people will actually say, no, we're not going to do that. The only sustainable way we're going to have climate policy is by making sure we make it fairly efficient, that is cheap, but actually functioning not just for rich, well-meaning Brits, but also for the Africans and all the other poor people in this world. And that is about investing in green energy R&D. Uh, this is supposed to be a reason to be cheerful conversation. Just finally, I want to ask you, while we're uh, worrying about R&D for tackling climate change, what about the sort of the looming prospect of World War Three? Every year seems to begin with another warning that the world is getting less safe, it's more volatile, whether it's America's place on the world stage, Russia, China, Ukraine, the Middle East. I- is that a bigger worry? I think there is some some real concern here. But one of the things you also need to remember is, if you look back in time, many more people died from war. You know, so we are living in an incredibly safe period of time. Yes, there is a war in, in, in Ukraine and there's a, a couple other ones. And it's terrible where people are dying. But most of us are not dying exactly because we live in an incredibly peaceful world. We forget that because every day hear the news about this war and that war. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that struck me as very, very absurd over the last 10 years is virtually nobody heard about the enormous and very sustained war in the Congo. We had a war, certainly for 10 years, that probably killed more than a million people. Nobody heard about it because it was not sexy. So again, we we live in one of the most peaceful times in the world. It's less peaceful since uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So it's not the most peaceful time, but it's much, much better than pretty much anything else you see in the 20th century and before. And if you want to share your reasons to be cheerful, get in touch with me. You can email me, matt at times.radio, or find me on Twitter or X or Insta or all of the things. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.